for the week of March 12th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 611, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in cyberspace at the entrance to the Silicon Valley Bank, I'm Michael Giltz. And the funny thing is you're actually in New York City, where I'm sure Silicon Valley Bank has a branch. I wouldn't be shocked if they have a branch. Do they have branches across the country? They have a branch in India. Well, they have a branch in London. Well, yes, but they they might have have 10 branches. Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe New York. They have a branch in in, in Napa Valley. They don't have a branch in um, Birmingham, Alabama. I assume. Oh, no, 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 no. Right. No. No, but but why are you saying this? I mean, for those who there's a long line of depositors out out front of Silicon Valley Bank waiting to see if they can get their money back. (laughs) It's a kind of a dark day for us. Now, Roku had like 25% of their total cash on hand was deposited at the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, $487 million, which means they have about $2 billion in cash on hand. Not bad. Or should I say had? Though the government, the Biden administration, is stepping in and telling everyone, everybody will get their money, don't you worry. Even though it's supposed to be 250000 uh, there's an asterisk if you're really a big business, in which case you get it all back. <laughs> but we, well, also, also it's, it's also the fact that like the FDIC hasn't had to cover a bank in so long that all the deposits that have been coming in, there's enough of a, of a cushion. Now, if other, that happens to other banks, there's right. not going to be that cushion anymore. Right, yeah, you don't want to set the precedent, again, that, oh, you can screw up your business and we'll bail you out. Oh, you can do this, we'll bail you out. So that's not a great precedent, but there you go. They want to stabilize the industry. But it's bad news for us because, of course, we had 25% of all the Showbiz Sandbox holdings in deposit at Silicon Valley Bank. So we're in kind of a tough spot, too. I mean, how much does that come to, Sperling? Hold on. Uh, if you carry the one, um, mm-hmm. uh, we owe them $400. Oh, <laughs> Whoops, sorry, <Yeah>. bleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we better make some money by telling people what's going to happen on the show this week. That's where the coin is. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are at the Oscars after Woo-hoo! party. That's right. Yeah, Vanity Fair, and we're here dancing with... Okay, we're not, actually. As everyone expected, the big winner was everyone, actually. Everyone... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Everyone, everywhere, there, all at once. I thought go. everybody won. No, Not at all. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but but one film won last year. It was um Green no, uh, uh Coda. Coda won. Yeah, yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh and every year we come up big when we're joined by Ann Thompson of Thompson on Hollywood and IndieWire fame. She'll give us the scoop on what happened at the Oscars behind the scenes. Ooh. It's everything you didn't see on Ooh. camera. In social justice, Michael has second thoughts about the battle between Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney, so I was wondering what, because I was been reading up on it, and I'm like, oh, uh, you, uh, things have changed. Uh, meanwhile, the BBC is having first thoughts about the controversy around benching match of the day presenter Mark Lineker. Do we really expect a person doing soccer commentary to be impartial on politics in his private life? I don't know. Is, that, is that what we're doing? Well, the fallout has been epic with essentially every sports broadcaster, commentator, and player in sports boycotting the BBC. We'll have to explain what that's all about. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the state of Hollywood via several stories. We lost 2,000 movie screens in North America. The new head of the National Association of Theater Owners tells his side of the story. Uh, Disney's Bob Iger, you know, the guy who he was old Bob, now he's new Bob again. Uh, he weighs in on the company and, you know, on Disney and 
Winter is coming for movies and TV when the writer's strike begins May 1st. We, we talked about it, uh, by the way, and the writer's strike will come. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. We're looking at box office around the world for the week ending March 12th. And the biggest effing movie. Oh, oh sorry. I'm in New York City and it just... You just tend to curse more when you're here. But the number one film around the world is Creed 3. It made $79 million this week. That's not right. The total is not right. That's a lot of money this week. That's what it made worldwide. Um, I'm not sure what the total is. We'll have to look that up because I have the wrong number. I forgot to update it. But that's a lot of money. I think it might be $179, $180 million worldwide. It cost about $75 million to make so. In its second week around the world, it has made more than its budget. So that's a very good sign. Uh, They're already talking about the Creed verse, which please don't. <laughs> you know, but anyway, that's uh, doing great. Had a good hold. Scream Six opened up this week. It made sixty-seven million dollars. That's double the reported budget of thirty-three million dollars. I hope half of that goes to Courtney Cox. She deserves it. If you've seen the little trailer, or if you're just standing on the subway platform in New York City, they have movable screens now showing quick video clips of stuff. And Scream Six has her realizing the scary guy is person is in her house, and she turns around and screams a look of horror, fright, and holy mother of God, I can't believe this is happening again. <laughs> All in one look. It's, uh, it's very good. Uh, but that made $67 million. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania continues to fall hard. $28 million this week. It's at only $450 million worldwide. Clearly, I don't think it's going to get to $600 million. It'll be you know, over $500 million, so it's going to be okay. But this is a disappointing film that has really fallen harder and faster than almost any other Marvel movie. Most of them tend to have legs, even if they're not well-reviewed. And I have to tell you a scary story if you're Disney. Uh, that's I've been visiting friends in New York. Saw a couple, Mike and Rosie, the cutest couple in New York City. Uh, she's really a big horror fan, even though she doesn't like the Scream films. Uh, but they see movies regularly, but they also watch a lot more stuff in their home, sitting on their couch. It's quite comfy, but they will go to movies every once in a while. Uh, she hasn't seen any of the Marvel movies since Endgame. And he has only seen one because all his friends wanted to go. And so he's like, well, okay, I'll go. But basically, they're like, you know, it feels like it's over and we're done. You know, it's been 23, 24 movies. We watched them all. They weren't all that good. But we do not need to go see these anymore because they're just not that good. And plus, the running times. They're complaining about the running times of all the movies. They're like, really? Does everything have to be two and a half hours long? They're looking at John Wick. They're going to go to that. But they're like, my God, it's almost three hours long. That's insane. So, well, all also, I mean, the, the way they, they positioned Endgame, it was, well, that, that's the end of the chap. That's the end of the chap. The, the, end of phase yeah. whatever, four. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, people were like, okay, well, you know, I, I watched that series. Yeah. And now, of course, they're like, wait, is this a, oh, it's a spinoff? It's like Frasier? Okay, so now and now that, these, these characters are going off on their own? And it doesn't feel like it's building to anything. It just feels like every movie is going to end with, and next week, you know, the cliffhanger for next week. So uh, that's kind of I don't know, old. kind of like comic books in general? Uh, comic books have end arcs. They have complete arcs and satisfying True, things. But, but uh, you know, the w- comic books is a big industry. A lot of people read them, but it's very small and niche compared to a lot of other genres like romance and mystery and sci-fi. So... You're narrowing your audience if that's all you're doing all the time. No standalones, no things that make you feel, oh my God, do we have to have the seventh movie of this character? And Bob Iger's going to address that in Inside Baseball. 
So back to the charts. Creed 3 made $80 million, and Sperling's going to find out how much it's making worldwide right now. Scream 6 opened to $67 million. Ant-Man made another $28 million. And now in 65, Adam Driver in a sci-fi flick, uh, 65 did not make $65 million. It made $21 million on its opening week. Pretty bad reviews. Uh, very bad reviews, I should say, but it cost $45 million, so if you can get to 130 if it opens up in a lot of other territories, uh, the story's not over on that movie yet, but not the best opening. Maybe, unlike Ant-Man, it'll have better legs. Wait, it, you wanted me to look up well, how much Creed 3 is making worldwide? Yeah, I'm not sure what its total is. I messed up on the, on the numbers there. Oh, okay. But when well, you go to China, you'll find out that the number one movie in that country is Post-Truth, which initially I thought was a release of the Taiwanese film, The Post-Truth World. But apparently it's a different movie, I think. I'm not sure. Uh, but Post-Truth, whatever it's about, I don't know, uh, it made about... $20 million in its opening week. I think there was a, a few million from previews and screenings and things like that. The Taiwanese film was about a sports athlete who's jailed wrongly, escapes, captures the media person who uh, helped put him behind bars, and then she starts to investigate what actually was going on to try and get her back in the spotlight, but at the same time, maybe exonerate him. So that sounds like a kind of a fun movie. This movie may be that movie, or maybe it's something entirely different. If you know, now I'm really raising the bar here, people. I have asked Sperling to look something up, and I'm going to throw to him, asking him to you know, reel off all the information for contacting us, so I hope he's paying attention. So if you know what's happening with Post Truth and what it's about, tell us. I'm sorry, were you talking to me? <laughs> No, you can you can email us dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we are on uh, Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can find the page to like. Um, now, you asked about Creed 3. Mm-hmm. Worldwide uh, total? Worldwide and... Si- Yeah, in 76 different territories, it has made to date $179.3 million. That's what I thought. I thought this week, I thought it had made $100 million in its opening week, and I just forgot to update that. So it is at $180 million worldwide. Then there's Cocaine Bear. You loved him at the Oscars, and he's still in theaters. $14 million this week. He's at $66 million and counting, along with the rather horse Elizabeth Banks. And gosh, it was one of the funnier comedy bits at the Oscars. <gasps> Low bar. But then there's Avatar, The Way of Water. That made $12 million. That's now at $2,294,000,000 worldwide. James Cameron's massive hit, Titanic, also a big hit. That's about $38 million below, but it made $9 million this week. So that's exciting. Maybe it'll pass it up again. Avatar's down to $12 million. Titanic still made $9 million. Uh, it's behind by $30, $40 million, but that's probably a movie that does better in reruns in terms of every 10 years or so. But, you know, the will be an avatar three so avatar two the way of water that's going to come back to theaters so that back and forth pretty exciting especially when you're james cameron and you're the king of the world 
back in China, there's the film Revival. This is a romantic thriller. Uh, there's a dead wealthy guy, and suddenly there's a fight over his will because a bastard son pops up out of nowhere. It's exciting. It's romantic. It opened to about $11 million. Then here in North America is Jesus Revolution, a 1960s or 70s story about hippies for Jesus starring Kelsey Grammer, made for the faith-based audience, but anybody who likes a good movie will want to see it. It's at $39 million worldwide. It made about $8 million this week, so that's going to triple its reported budget of $15 million. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, did not win the Oscar for Best Animated Film, but it does have the best legs. And it made $8 million this week. It's at $462 million worldwide. Another terrific animated film is Suzumi. This is the Japanese animated movie by the director of Your Name and Weathering With You, both of which were massive worldwide hits. Those are by director Makato Shinkai. And there, this movie has made $8 million this week, $111 million worldwide, and it still has China and the U.S. to come. So there's a lot of ground left for this movie to make. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And certainly, Chinese fans were enjoying The Wandering Earth 2. That made another $7 million. That's at just about $600 million. So when we're looking at the Chinese New Year and all the movies that came out, Full River Red, Full River? Full River Red by Zhang Yimou is on top permanently, it looks like. That's the big winner. That's opening up in the U.S. soon. I'm looking forward to seeing it. But both it and The Wandering Earth did very well indeed. Here in North America, Woody Harrelson did okay with his heartwarming, feel-good sports flick, Champions. That made $6 million on its opening week. And then uh, another animated film, The First Slam Dunk, that Japanese animated film about a boys' basketball team, made another $5 million. It's tearing it up in South Korea. It's at $120 million total. I believe it's still to open in North America. And Deadline had a good feature. It has a running series on international films that haven't broken yet in the U.S. or are coming here. And it's a welcome focus on, on worldwide movies because we want movies to do good in every country. And talking about them, even if they're not coming here, is really good. Those big hit French films, Russian films, Chinese films, Korean films, it tells us what's happening in the cinema worldwide. So it's cool to see those stories, and that one in particular about the first slam dunk was good. Uh, another Japanese animated movie is Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Aiba, To the Swordsmith. What a mouthful. Basically, it's a repurposed TV episode. So unlike Mugen Train, the original feature film based on the Demon Slayer series, uh, this isn't going to be 100th as big. It made $5 million this week. It's at $60 million worldwide. But that's darn good when you're just taking TV episodes and slapping them up on the big screen. You know, you didn't have to make an original movie. People are paying to watch a TV show in the theaters. That's happening more and more. Certainly, Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, the new guy, Richie. People are showing up for that. That made $3 million this week. That's at $37 million worldwide. Uh, I think that's about the most interesting stuff, except, you know, movies get good reviews, movies get bad reviews, and sometimes it hurts. Seth Rogen was talking about how bad reviews really suck. Like some people never recover from really bad reviews. And he says sometimes, like when he got bad reviews for The Green Hornet, it wasn't fun, but it didn't feel personal because it was more like a franchise that he was a part of or a would-be franchise. But when he got bad reviews for The Interview, a film he was more intimately involved with, that really hurt. And he said it really sucked, but 
you know, life goes on, especially if you're already working on something else. That helps. Uh, of course, people took this quote and interview and said, oh, South Rogan says bad reviews are terrible. He's like, no, or they should never happen. He wants to ban. No, he just said it's no fun, you know, but, you know, life goes on. And I don't know about you, but I, I never really took delight in trashing a movie. It's a lot more fun to talk a movie about a movie you really enjoy. Well, and if you recall the interview, I mean, have you seen the I've never saw the interview for as much strum and drang as that that movie caused with Sony and and it being, you know, that the big Sony hack being caused. Uh, this was the film parodying uh, uh, the South Korean, uh, South Korean, the North Korean dictator. Right. At the time. Yeah. Uh, I never actually saw the movie. Neither did I. Maybe it was and the so bad reviews. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But if you like movies, you must have been paying attention to the Oscars last night. We don't have any numbers yet on how many people watch. We're still waiting for the overnights. I don't know why, because we're recording at 3.30 in the afternoon, Eastern time. So those numbers should be out. They sit on them longer and longer sometimes. I don't know why. But I've heard a lot of people mention they've watched the film and were watching when they hadn't watched ever much or in years. So... Eh, that anecdotal information is meaningless till we get the actual numbers, but it does give you a glimmer of hope that maybe the ratings will bump up. Well, I know one person, Michael, that was watching for sure. In fact, uh, I don't know if they saw any of the commercials because Ann Thompson of Thompson <laughs> on true. Hollywood, yeah, the editor at large at IndieWire, she joined us every year the day after the Oscars. She hasn't slept because, of course, she went to every single Oscar party just to report. <laughs> oh, no, she's shaking. No, apparently she has not gone to every I single Oscar party. Calm. I went just to the governor's ball. Oh, well. How glamorous. I, I, I went just to went to the governor's ball. Yeah, really. We went to bed. <laughs> not together. <laughs> well, well Ann Thompson, thank mm -hmm. you for joining us. Uh, I, I literally had your your uh, your picks, your final predictions made March 9th. I that well this year. <laughs> we, we tied, so there's a lot of love in the air. We both had 16, I think. 16 went, you know, picks correct, which is respectable, but not. You need 17 or 18 to boast to anyone. Yeah, that's how I felt. People are like, you did pretty well, good because I did good on the top categories, but I fell apart lower. No, I basically got all the expected ones right, and exactly, I I, I did well at the sh with the shorts, but I I'm um, production design I missed, and I thought Banshees would win something. Yeah, exactly. I had the same thinking. I thought they would give it screenplay at least. At least. And I knew I only got one short right, and that was because I knew that the Apple animated short. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. I hated it so much. There was no way it wouldn't win. I knew <laughs> I it. Was I, I picked I, it. Yeah, yeah. I, me too. I knew I, I disliked that the that Irish goodbye was the was the emotional one, and that mm -hmm. that would win. And I insisted on voting for Le Poppy. I just had to. I sh I knew I was wrong, and I just <laughs> did it anyway. I voted on the red the red suitcase, and I was wrong. So welcome to the show. You're usually <laughs> right. And where does where do we find Anne Sperling? Um, IndieWire. So ThompsonOnHollywood.com, where you can go to IndieWire, and of course, all of her work is there. Now, I must say, you you probably had like 500 people at the Oscars, it seemed like, because today's front page on IndieWire, like, I'm like, who are all these people? When were they? A lot of, so, so we had two people on the red carpet for the first time. So they were fine. Don't you mean the champagne carpet? Champagne carpet. <laughs> and then there were, um, which was already dirty and muddy by the time I got there. Um, and then we had uh, three people backstage also. So they were filing stuff. And then we had people watching the virtual press room 
So they were filing stuff. And then we had four people at the event. So Eric was running around talking to the losers in, in the uh, bar and writing up his story, collecting string for that. And Ryan um, Latanzio had never gone to the Oscars before, and he wrote up this sort of inside the, the event story. So it, it puts all this horrible pressure on me to be the last one <laughs> to file. You know, just and, and my story just collects everything from the whole year and tries to put it in perspective and puts, puts the right quotes in the right places. I hope. We shall see. Absolutely. And looking overall, of course, the Academy wants to have 10 nominees so they can reach a broader audience. They had Top Gun Maverick. They had Avatar The Way of Water. They have a lot more members now. And is it possible that all those new international members have made uh, the Oscars have a broader perspective, maybe a more arty perspective, and certainly a younger perspective? And that's why if you look at the last four years, these aren't Really, the traditional Oscar movies, with one exception maybe, but they're all pretty bold. You have a foreign language film winning for the first time with Parasite from the shingle Neon. You have Nomadland winning for Fox Searchlight, a pretty genuinely indie film despite Fox Searchlight being behind it. You have our first streamer winner with Coda, which was heartwarming but not from a traditional studio. And then you have the pretty funky out there sci-fi comedy drama Everything Everywhere All at Once from A24. So it's kind of like the Emmys where the, the major networks never win anymore. They have the rating successes, but all the Emmys go to HBO and FX and all the other f cool cable channels. That seems to be what's happening at the Oscars, too. Well, I will say that A24 seems to have taken the mantle away from Searchlight and Focus, the traditional theatrical distributors. And, it, you know, the, the theatrical specialty films were really challenged this year. And I, I would even put... Uh, Fableman's in that category, and oh, and yeah. Triangle of Sadness, and 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 Banshees. It, the, these movies, you know, just ended up not um, and Tar not getting the kind of traction that they ordinarily, I feel, would have gotten if the box office were uh, more robust. So what ended up happening? The one that was a hit was Everything Everywhere All at Once. The one, and I would argue that Parasite and Coda. And going back, Green Book, I'm going to take Nomadland out of it because that was a pandemic year. I would argue that these were populist entertainments, that they were crowd pleasers, that they actually worked for the audience. And that the uh, Oscars, even if they're international, even if um, All Quiet on the Western Front proved to be something of a challenger at the end of the day, it was um, everything, everywhere, all at once that pleased the most people and entertained the most people. The, the best picture winners are not the art house films lately. They may look like them or be distributed by distributors that are affiliated with art films, but they are actually hits. Except from Nomadland, but we can take that out. Of well, that, the would, that cost about that $5 million to make and grossed $40 million, so it certainly was commercially okay. successful. You wouldn't call Nomadland a crowd pleaser, exactly. No. I mean, it, had a, it was heavy. I mean, of course, Coda and, and Parasite and um, Everything Everywhere All at Once wouldn't have gotten as far as Best Picture if they didn't also have serious narratives, uh, mm -hmm. disability or, or um, uh, inequality or immigration. You know, these were immigrant families finding a way to, to become whole. They, they, were, they were other things going on. You so know? I, th I think of Green Book as a very traditional... 
I guess I think of Green Book as a very traditional Oscar winner. And when I look at the list for the last 20 years, even I see one movie after another that feels like a traditional Oscar winner, whereas I guess Parasite and everything doesn't quite. They feel a little bolder, even if they are crowd pleasing. They're not going to. Yeah. Oh, and somebody was arguing. I saw somewhere that uh, everything everywhere all at once could arguably be considered a foreign language film <laughs> because it has so much Mandarin and Cantonese in it. With so in a way, what you're saying is it's kind of like uh, that old adage about presidents, like the who, who wins the presidency in a, in a presidential campaign, whoever you most want to have a beer with, you know, whoever the... Absolutely. And and who, who you know, who feels like a good daddy, you know, I mean, in, in, yes. in a way, yeah. That and may be the, that, that may be the gay films more than the regular film. Anyway. Well, yeah. What uh, do you think that uh, Netflix? I mean, because you're right. Uh, All Quiet came out of I don't want to say nowhere because it did receive a lot of nominations, but it really didn't seem like it was going to win Best Picture until maybe the last three weeks when everybody was talking about it. And I think or, that's because everybody went and watched it. Or they needed something new to say. It did so well at the Baftas, you know, that everybody yes. recognized it as a threat. And it, and there was a moment halfway through the show where you could feel the audience when you were sitting there in the theater sort of go, because it had won four Oscars and you're going, Ooh, you know, and then I, and I was reassuring everyone around me. I said, just wait, you know, Michelle Yeoh is going to win. The Kwan's are going to, Kwan and Shiner are going to win writing and directing and picture. Don't worry about it. You know? And they weren't competing against each other. So you couldn't tell much. It was only on score that they competed with each other until best picture. So That's if, why breath was withdrawn but you know the, the so it was interesting i mean that they won editing which i expected um everything everywhere they won seven which was a lot which is more yeah, than most movies do uh, uh, gravity i think won seven and the last one was slumdog millionaire to win they eight. won eight yes that i didn't and that was the last movie to have a song by a famous indian composer a.r Rahman win best song right. so not technically an Indian film, but very much. I was wondering. I was so happy that Natu Natu won, and I thought they, I thought the number really delivered. I thought they did a good job. And people there was all, a piece on uh, on on IndieWire actually about. Uh, I guess it, they missed an opportunity to feature yeah. South Asian, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I understand that that I understand, but I also know that you have a very short period of time to put something together, and you, it's kind of like. You need people that you, I mean, you just hire the people you know. Uh, but that's I, don't, how, I don't know. That's how, well, that's the, the question there is, is that everybody wants to hire the people they know. I understand what you're saying about the Oscars in, in, a, in a very pressure cooker situation. I totally yeah. get what you're saying. But in a larger context, there are a lot of producers and directors and out, out there who, who are so unwilling to take a chance. On people that they haven't worked with and that's why so many people are not included you know that's yep. that's the yeah. issue well you spend a lot of the time tracking the awards season and you watch the, the you cover the critics awards you cover the golden globes you cover the baptist you cover all the guilds imaginable and it seems clearer than ever as the years go on you really can ignore everything but the guilds i mean the golden globes did a terrible job this year as they have for a number of years uh the <laughs> critics it's really all about the guilds and the baptist to a degree might be a guild because there is overlap not a ton but you know you get distracted by who the critics support lo loving tar 
Yeah, but they didn't do as the overlap wasn't as significant this year as that usually is. Well, no, of course not. No, I'm saying the overlap in voting member. There is some member. There's like 500 members of BAFTA who also vote at the Oscars or something like that. So I'm saying there is at least some overlap like the guilds, where a per- percentage of the SAG will vote for the Oscars. But the critics don't vote at all. The Golden Globes don't vote at all. So just ignore them because it distracts you. You think, oh, Tar is doing great. No, no. It looks like if you focus on who actually won the ones where people might vote, it's, it's all about everything everywhere. And uh, all quiet. Also. Yeah. Now, when, when uh, Everything Everywhere won, because I think the first award it won was Best Scre- Original Screenplay. Uh, and no, I, I, it was the Supporting, supporting Actress. Oh, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. So, the, so, yeah, Supporting. And then, by the way, talk about a way to kick off your show. Those two speeches by Ki-Hu Kwan and, and, uh, Jamie Lee. and then Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, talk about great way to start your show. Uh, and it was all downhill from there, I guess. But when, when they won Best uh, Original Screenplay, did you think, okay, that's either the consolation prize, you're not winning Best Director, or no, now, now here your sweep really begins. Like here's I where- It isn't a sweep, it isn't a sweep. They got seven out of 11, but um, they, they lost a couple things. I mean, they didn't get everything. So it, it, but I knew they were gonna get the, the most important thing about what they did get was a lot of it was above the line. Mm-hmm. To have to have uh, three um, acting. acting contenders and writing, directing, and picture is very rare. To have to third have time in history, actors. third time in history to have an acting right, first time ever for them to then win best picture. It's stunning. That's correct. That is correct. And and people of color and you know representation. So that's amazing in directors and 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 uh, lead actress and supporting actor. I was a little surprised that. Uh, Ruth Carter won the Oscar again for uh, Wakanda because I just thought, you know, she'd won for Black Panther. I thought, like, it's the same same costumes in a way. I know they're not exactly the same. But uh, the reason she won was because of the funeral costumes, those white costumes. And also the invention of the water world, which was new. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you're if you're the visual effects people and and you're up against avatars, you just go. Do I have to go to this or can I just stay home? No, I, saw, I ran into the guy who was the VFX person for uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, and he was the most relaxed person you ever saw. He knew he was just going to be able to go to the Oscars and have a good time. <laughs> he wasn't worried at all. No. Well, now, but I, I would argue that Avatar should have won a lot more than it did, and that Cameron should have been nominated. He didn't show, of course. But I thought that Cameron should have been nominated. What he did was amazing. Yeah, I I mean- There is box office that matters, and and that's his reward, and they'll come back later with the sequels. uh, I was a little disappointed that Martin McDonough didn't win anything. He literally pointed. Yeah. Well, here's a couple controversies. Did is there any pushback from people about Disney just doing the Little Mermaid trailer during the show? It's like, yes, you can have people from a movie come present an award uh, if they fit and buy an ad. You know, <laughs> do not show it during the show on a three and a half hour show. Are other people they annoyed? Did buy an ad. This is the secret sto- story here. So I was reporting this today. They bought, that is called a quote unquote integrated sponsorship. Oh, like when you say, when you have the, you know, Jackie Gleason hold up something in the middle of his variety show. It's television universe. So Disney sold two. One was bought by Disney and the other was bought by uh, Warner Brothers. 
Warner Brothers bought the the these tribute to Warner Brothers. So ha, I was right, Michael. They should not be able to do that in the show. I find that outrageous. Well, it was a three and a half hour show, and it should be it three. Yeah, it made it longer. Take those minutes out. I totally agree with you. I think it's horrible that they did this. Did Warner and Brothers have edit, so editorial? Con- everybody sort of go. What's what's the what is that? Did Warner Brothers have editorial control over its tribute? I'm sure they did. I mean, they paid for it. I'm sure they created it. I thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. A hundred year tribute to Warner Brothers with the Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain. I thought it was embarrassing. Those of us who know that they have the MGM library understand what a travesty that is. And this is a, and this is my overall complaint. This is the Academy Awards. They're supposed to celebrate movie history. They're supposed to know it. They had a seven-minute advertorial for the Academy Museum, but how can you take it seriously when they allow a tribute to Warner Brothers that includes an MGM film? They have Jimmy Kimmel knowing he's going to talk about one of the biggest films of the year that may win Best Song, and he doesn't know the difference between Bollywood and Tollywood. And you have a movie nominated for Best Picture, and they don't bother to mention the actress who died who's in the current Best Picture nominee, Triangle of Sadness, who died within the last calendar, you know, died within just a few weeks ago. That was shocking. I mean, but they didn't put her in because nobody knew who she was. But it's a and Best Picture. And Hesh, and they left out any number of other Paul, people. Paul too. Sorvino. Tom Sizemore. When they left out Tom Sizemore, Sizemore and Robert Blake, they don't, you know, they've decided they're not worthy Robert of mentioning. Robert Blake was a murderer, so I'm, I'm a, I go along with them on that. Uh-huh. And Tom Sizemore, you know, was abusive, but we're not, but we're not yeah. saying these people are good people. No, they were good. They were good actors. And, um, and no, but I'm not saying all the all the other people on the air are. We're not saying they're good people. We don't know anything about them. Maybe they're terrible people. This is a, this is something that a lot of people are debating, and I think it's worth bringing up for sure. But what I do wonder, though, uh, the Bollywood reference. I do wonder if it's they did that because because somebody had to write that. And I do wonder if they said, look, we they're just say Hollywood, but they're just nobody's going to know what that is. They're just ignorant. I, well, I'm not sure. I think I might agree. They're aiming at a mainstream audience. What they did, though, was put a Bollywood star as the introducer of, of the song. And, mm, and yes. it did show a certain lack of understanding of the nuances of this. Yeah. You uh, know, speaking of lack of understanding, Tem, T-E-M, the dress, uh, you, you must be happy you weren't sitting behind her because that dress with the white, the white, I was like... I was sitting in the balcony and you could see her across the room. I mean, I, I didn't, who was sitting behind her? Yeah, <laughs> but going back... I, I did like their, their light show on the seats, the lighting on the... On, yeah, on that the, was interesting, yeah. Well, I did like this. I do like you reporting this. I look forward to seeing this story. But I think when you put a segment in the show, you are. this is to pat the industry on the back and say, well done, here is our year. To let one of the studios buy up time and present its own thing and as if it has the imprimatur of the Academy Awards or to put a trailer in the middle of the show as if that's appropriate, I think that's really, really bad. And I think the other studios should be say, enough. We're, we're all going to buy, you know, 10 minutes of airtime to show ourselves. Exactly. They offered it to a lot of other people who didn't take up their offer. They shouldn't so offer it to many, anyone. How many things were they going to sell? Yeah. Oh, Lord. That's that's bad. Well, how about overall? What did you think? I mean, but anyway, 100 years of Warner Brothers. They could do 100 years of Ted Turner and show Casablanca, I guess. But what did you think? I of- still, honestly, I still have to go look at the show on mm-hmm. 
I have to go look at the red carpet, see how it played. I have to, I, I, I saw the Hugh Grant thing. That was amusing. I'm, I'm with Hugh Grant, 100%. She was inane, this woman who asked him. But the red carpet is inherently inane. Ashley Graham. I mean, they always ask the same stupid, inane questions. And Hugh Grant is one of the most adept, on his feet, clever people who ever lived. And she gave him nothing to work with. It's her fault, in my view. Anyway, Honestly, so I will catch up with the red carpet. I'll catch up with the show. But sitting there in the house watching the show and all the people I spoke to at the governor's ball afterwards, we loved it. Mm -hmm. It was classic. It was comfortable. It was what we wanted. It was Jimmy Kimmel doing his thing smoothly. It was mostly staying out of the way. Yeah, I, I mean, he had a couple of sort of boner jokes that went out to the mainstream. I'm assuming that was he knew what he was doing. Um, but I, I was really very pleased with it. I had a great time. And it had a lot I'm of heart. To do it to, to be able to go. And it had a lot you of know? heart. And then the speeches were good. I felt like they were all listening for once and gave really good short. Uh, Personal. Uh, Point emotional often. The Navalny speech was extraordinarily brilliant with Julia, the wife, coming out. And, you know, that broke my heart. Uh, I thought the that short you didn't like about the, the mole and the fox and the horse and everything, that speech was charming. Um, and the song and the songwriters it. doing Carpenters, I'm on top of the world. That was cute. That was great. The RRR winners, Natu Natu. And also the, the guy, you know, the, 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 even though I didn't pick the Irish goodbye, they got the whole audience to sing happy birthday to the star. Oh, that was, that was, uh, you, you know, I could see the producer going, no, no, we have to get ASCAP on the phone. Yeah, you got to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what would have, uh, the, by the way, did you see at the end there, what Jimmy Kimmel did with the, with the, you know, number of days since last Oscar incident, number of Oscars since last incident. And he like flipped it over and it's at the very end and he's walking off stage and he like takes the number and he's zero and he flips it over and he puts the one down. <laughs> and it was a great way to end it. And I thought, but you know, it's almost kind of uh, Harrison Ford has become like the best picture guy. Yeah. He's, oh, like he's just the like, guy you bring he's out. He's like Warren me. Beatty of old or John Wayne back in the day. Yeah. It's, and the funny thing is he's so like he reads everything slowly. I would have paid to see Harrison Ford come out and just in his little gravelly voice kind of say, well, Steven Spielberg's here and he's won an Oscar and Kiyu Kwan is here. He, he's won an Oscar. Two people from the Temple of Doom has won Oscars. But, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm not. Uh, anyway. <laughs> best, best picture. Let's get on with it. Messed up his speech, uh, I noticed, a little bit, Harrison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, did he take the Oscar and hand it to Kihu Kwan? He did, right? Yes. That was lovely. Well, he was about to, and I think he's, they say, he, Kihu Kwan said, no, no, you got to give it to, he's the guy. Aw. And he pointed to the producer. Or, and but, did, they, did they hug? Yes. That was I, what was so, that was the, the unbelievable Hollywood moment was, I mean, when you look at Brendan Fraser and what he went through with the Golden Globes and kind of disappearing and all that, that was the story there, that he was a comeback story. When you look at Kihu Kwan, that too is a, is a story. When you look at Michelle Yeoh, it's like, hey, thanks for the last 25 years. And Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and the Hollywood royalty with her parents being nominated and never winning than she does. That, that was great. It was a lot of heart. Awesome. They gave up, they, they created a moment that paid off really well where Halle Berry, the last woman of color, yes. 
all those years ago, finally presents to the second woman to of color to win that Best Actress Award, uh, Michelle Yeoh. That was that was huge. And they created that moment thanks to Will Smith. <laughs> That's right, because he wasn't there. <laughs> thanks, I Will. think it's one of the few times that happens where, yeah, re- of recent year. Yeah, normally it's the best actor gives it to the best actress. So and they the other made, way what is it called? They made um, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Exactly. And that's kind of the show, isn't it? I mean, uh, it was long. They could be better. I don't need any comedy bits. But uh, it was, I thought, technically very strong. And hasn't, a lot of these shows haven't been in recent years. And it, it, uh, it had good speeches. And that'll save you every time. How did, uh, just before we go, how did Lady Gaga's, uh, which she was, she wasn't, she is, she isn't. Uh, okay, so I, I did some reporting on that. So basically, I had interviewed the producers of the show, and they were leaving their options open, you know, kind of with Lady Gaga. And she was supposedly working on another show, and you know how she is. She gets immersed, you know, she's such a serious actress. So she was saying, no, I couldn't possibly. And then at the very last minute, she sort of, I think, saw the wisdom of just going, you know, do, go ahead and do it, you know. And they did a bare bones thing. They had to squeeze it in at the last minute. They had to add this thing to the show. Again, it made it a little longer. Um, but what, of course they wanted her. Of course they wanted to add it to the show. And I just think she made some very smart um, calls going with no makeup and very bare, you know. Um, I have to wear my ripped jeans. I don't have time to change. I know. She was very glam on the red carpet, the champagne. I know. Carpet. Yeah. So yep. She went and took everything off. Basically. I, I might never have performed because you will never match the perfection of what Bradley Cooper arranged for them for Shallow. That's like the well, greatest be, Oscar performance ever. I, agree. I could see why she didn't want to try to top it, but she did. She actually did well. She did well. Yeah, she didn't top it, but it was, it was it. it. No. Well, I mean, but that's, you know, uh, I will say that you could tell she, that the musician, they were all session musicians. She went and thanked them afterwards because she was like totally unrehearsed. Um, they rehearsed, but the actual video portion of it was like, I don't know, just walk up really closely and just get a really tight shot of, of, of Lady Gaga because we have nothing. We have no idea what they're going to do. And that part of it was a little awkward, but uh, yeah, I thought it, it, it came off. Uh, she sounded great. So, Well, it was better than the African Village set for poor Rihanna. That was an embarrassing that looking set. That was embarrassing with the thatched huts and oh. everything. I, was, I wasn't sure how much that, how, how apparent that was Very. on television. Because it was very apparent in the room. Yeah. I was embarrassed by that. Yeah, you should be. Especially for a movie with an Afrofuturist setting where, you know, the whole point is that they're not the... The the thatched huts, uh, it's the most extraordinarily advanced civilization in the world. It ain't Tarzan. It's actually... (laughs) Exactly. That was, that was embarrassing. That was, I think that was the biggest faux pas the producers made, in my view. Yeah. Do these producers come back? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Aren't they on a, they're on a contract, right, for a few years? I don't know about that. Oh, I thought the whole point was to get people in and make sure they do it for multiple years. So Absolutely. That, yeah. and they, they have Glenn, so Glenn Weiss has directed um, seven times. This was his eighth, and he was producing or co-producing for the second time, but this time with his own partner, Ricky Kirshner. And so, so they were in charge, for real. And That's and Kirshner did the Tonys all these years. So he was when I interviewed them, it was clear that Kirshner was doing a lot of it, and that Weiss was involved mostly with the musical stuff. That mm-hmm. was impressive. That's what I could tell. Give him a ten-year deal. So I'm with you, 
the Oscars are over for this year. I back every year. You know, why mess with something that isn't broken? Right. I mean, they used to have Carson. They used to have uh, Crystal, Billy Crystal. So my comparison was that the years where they had like 14 different shows produced by Gil Cates. Yeah. You know? knew what he was doing he knew where the uh, mistakes lay I, I i think these are i think these guys are doing great what uh so the, now now that the oscar season is over for this year because let's face it and if there's anybody that knows this it's you next year's oscar season has just begun like right now i'm, I'm go gonna to kick it off day. that's when i'll pay attention when, when is that can in may ah okay so that was going to be my question what is next for you? Come. I say that like you're a- Emmys. Very exciting. Oh, okay. I get to sort of swan in and just, you know, say, hey, I want to talk to Pedro Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw a very funny joke on Twitter where all good jokes are, I guess, uh, that said uh, uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Pedro Pascal have been hospitalized in critical condition for carrying Disney Plus on their back. <laughs> Something to that effect. I probably butchered that joke, but anyway. I love, uh, well, yeah. I love Andor. Yeah. I love Andor so much. I love Andor and I love Mandalorian. Yeah. I adore Mandalorian. I interviewed Pedro Pascal a while back for, um, because I loved Mandalorian, but he hadn't become a big star yet because nobody Song. knew what he looked like, right? So so then he, was, he did the supporting actor thing in... Um, uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Mm-hmm. I thought he was just brilliant, incredible. And yeah, I interviewed yeah. him and I, I knew he was a star. I just understood that he was a star because I'm responding already off of just my limited, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever. And I and, and now he's the, an enormous star because of The Last of Us. He's just huge. And he's yeah. got his, you know, fashion on the red carpet thing going on. Oh, thank you for that. The Last of Us just put out their numbers. They have now passed uh, House of Dragons. Uh, Last of Us, the final numbers for the last episode. And for the whole season, they're averaging more than 30 million viewers per episode. Uh, which is more than the 29 million viewers per episode for House of Dragons. That's for an original show based on it. Yeah, that is a monster, monster hit. Craig Mason. Craig Mason. I listen to him all the time on his Script Notes podcast with John August. So I'm a huge fan. He knows what he's doing. Well, we're fans of yours, Anne. And, uh, you know, will we see you in Cannes? You will see me on the Quasette. Yay! Oh, thank goodness. If uh, not CinemaCon. We've got other people going to CinemaCon. Oh. So you should look him up. Uh, Tony Maglio. Did you see him last year? Did you get, did you get to meet I him? I believe last so, year? yes. Uh, he'll be going back with our other guy, Brian Welk. So our business guys are going. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. I know it's one of your busiest days. And of course, the day. It's always fun. I love the ritual. Always fun. Well, it's always great to have Ann Thompson on the show, of course. It's an annual tradition. And so is me getting on a soapbox. Oh, yes. You love your soapboxes. Oh, I love them. Sorry, people. Uh, but it is, it's really hard to talk about the entertainment business and not talk about all these things that are impacting who you hire, when you hire, who you fire, and what's going on. Uh, and Sperling loves it when I'm wrong. Don't you, Sperling? Well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, yeah, we don't like to get on soap boxes because we like much taller boxes, right? Like refrigerator boxes. <laughs> That's what but, we uh, You do love it when yeah, I'm but, wrong, but, don't you? But when, when you, yeah, when you, it's hard not to talk about these issues when they actually affect entertainment companies. And, and we talked about uh, DeSantis, the, the, you know, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. We talked about him yeah. uh, a couple weeks ago in relation 
to the Walt Disney Company. So why don't you explain well, maybe what's I, going Maybe on. I was wrong. Uh, he had a battle with Disney. He was very public. We're going to strip them of all these special privileges. And basically, he backed down on almost all of it. They still have their big tax breaks. They're still allowed to build whatever they need to for Disney. The local counties are not being burdened with billion dollars in debt and the need to provide Disney's infrastructure for them, which would have been untenable. He blustered and he realized, oh, this isn't actually going to work. So the legislature stepped in, reeled it all back. So he got his headlines and then he caved because it was going to be a big Megillah. And this is coming from a guy I'm like, I don't know why they had all those crazy little, you know, uh, privileges in the first place, but stripping them away because you don't like something they said or did is not right either. So he backed down. The only thing he kept was this uh, board overseeing the tax district that Disney is in. That's basically the only thing he kept. I get to decide who's on the board. I was like, whatever. They can still build what they need to. You caved. But then he announced the people on his board and they are literally all cultural warriors. I mean, they would be proud yeah. of this. They are extreme, far-right, just massively culture wars. They have no experience whatsoever in overseeing a tax district, overseeing the complexities of a major area with one of the biggest drivers of tourism and business in your state and the complicated issues of infrastructure and taxing and water management, all these things that go into, they do none of this. They're just there to create chaos. And so when you put them in charge, again, he operates out of creating fear. He doesn't say what books you can and cannot put in your classroom. He just says, well, you better not put any books I don't like, or we may fine you or, you know, charge you with a felony. So of course you panic and you censor yourself. Now Disney has to know there are these crazy people, as I would call them, who have no experience in what they're supposed to be doing, overseeing this tax district. And if they step out of line, they have to worry that Ron DeSantis is going to give them the thumbs up to say, go ahead and create a little chaos and make life miserable for Disney. And that may work. Maybe, maybe he's playing a long game. I think he's just throwing some red meat to his, uh, to his uh, support and letting these people there to play around. Maybe they won't have much impact, but it is certainly something Disney has to worry about. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially it removes their special tax uh, status. Well, it doesn't remove it. Uh, no, it doesn't. They have their special tax status. It's just the board overseeing the district where they are is now peopled by crazy far right warriors who hate Disney and have said so in a hundred different ways. They hate what they believe Disney stands for. Of course, all Disney really stands for is making money and leave us alone. <laughs> That's all they, they're not really, you know, on the front lines of progressivism. They're just a big multinational corporation that wants to make a lot of money and not seem hateful to us many people as possible that's really all they are but as far well, as at Ron the very did, end of february they're a good punching uh, yeah, bag de, yeah DeSantis saying you know the corporate kingdom finally comes to an end right uh and total then BS. he said there's a new sheriff in town and accountability will be the order of the day to so total even BS. while he was saying you know all that other stuff that that you know I said I'd do A, B, and C. I'm not going to mention the fact that we're not doing A, B, and C, but we're still doing lowercase d. Uh, you know, it's like... So Disney know, has something to worry about. talking a big game. And BBC has something to worry about. This is a very interesting story. It deals with freelancing and how all these companies have people who are not on staff, and yet they might as well be. I freelanced for the New York Post for like 10, 12, 15 years. I was writing stories every week. They expected and depended on me to write stories, but of course I was never on staff and got benefits because it's cheaper for them. Uh, they never offered me a job, I never accepted it, maybe I wouldn't have, but all these companies have freelancers and yet they expect them to sort of toe the line in ways that freelancers shouldn't have to. Here's what happened. 
Gary Lineker is a football legend. That is soccer for you Americans. He was a player, and he has been the host of Match of the Day for almost a quarter of the century, 25 years practically, as the face of BBC soccer football coverage. He's a huge presence on social media, and he's often weighed in on politics and sort of pushed the boundaries of what the BBC feels is acceptable. Anyway, he's also the BBC's highest paid presenter at, get this, listen to this, Tucker Carlson, $1.6 million a year. He's like, is that his bonus? No, no, that's his total that's salary. Such a, that's the, yeah. And well, that's, that's a yeah. ton of money, by the way. I'm not belittling it, but that just shows you how out of whack we are in, in North America. You know, maybe everybody at BBC gets a good salary because the people at the top aren't getting paid obscene amounts. So good for them. But that really is a little splash of cold water. Anyway, here's why he got in trouble. He weighed in on a new refugee law being pushed by the government, the conservative government of Rishi Sunak. Uh, and they are basically going to break UK and EU and international law and refuse to accept refugees coming in by boats over the channel. Uh, you're required by law and decency if somebody claims asylum to at least give them the opportunity to make their case. You can't just push them back into the water. Well, that's what he wants to do now. Just stop accepting people. They're trying to hand France half a billion dollars to not let the people get across the channel and you deal with them. And uh, Gary Lineker thought this was terrible. He said the new policy is, quote, beyond awful. And he said later, quote, on social media, we take far fewer refugees than any other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s, end quote. Clearly, when he used the word dissimilar, people said, oh, now you're getting too upright. <laughs> that's just pushing yeah. the line. Just, it's only, only a British text using, that's not dissimilar to Germany. That, you know, that really just drove their ire. <laughs> the BBC waited and said his text violates the duty of impartiality they expect for all employees, even though he's not an employee, he is a freelancer. They said rather confusingly, he should, we never said that Gary should be an opinion-free zone or that he can't have a view on issues that matter to him, but we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party political issues or political controversies, which means you can have opinions, just not on anything that really matters. And yeah, then exactly. well, all yeah. hell broke loose. They pulled him from match of the day. The co-hosts refused to, to go on the air. Presenters refused to Yeah, they to aired go. it. They aired it without commentary. Yes. They it said, here's the match like of the day. 20 minutes of highlights. Nobody talking. Unbelievable. All of their sports program can collapse. It's as if everybody in the sports world said, screw you, ESPN. We're not going near you until you deal with this. Athletes said right. they wouldn't give And then ESPN aired SportsCenter with just like highlights. And you were like, wait, what is the highlight of? Yeah. Oh, it's the, it's, the, it's the Lakers game. The athletes refused to <laughs> give interviews. And then the BBC said, we won't ask you to, because if you refuse to do an interview, that might break one of your contracts or, or things that you are required to do. So we just won't even ask you. Other hosts on other sports shows refused to do their shows. Radio 5 had to replace sports shows with repeats of old podcasts. All hell broke loose. And finally... Under pressure and negotiation, a deal is made. He gets back on the air. They admit their guidelines are very vague and spotty. They've known for years now they needed to address this because it's not clear what is intended or not intended or what's allowed and not allowed. And how should that apply to freelancers who don't actually work for them technically and, of course, are not in news or commentary? Because like you said at the top of the show, I mean, there's a difference between a journalist 
covering politics and the world of government and somebody hosting a cooking show. If you're on a cooking show at the BBC, are you not allowed to have an opinion on politics? If you're on the Saturday morning's children's show, you're talking about soccer, and then in your private life, you tweet something about uh, the refugee crisis? Uh, and I don't think this is about just because I might agree with what he's saying, which I do. Uh, you know, he's weighing in on a government issue, and he is not a journalist covering politics or anything remotely like that that area. He is a football guy or a cooking person or a kid's host, or you're on BBC classical radio playing Brahms. That should not mean in your private life, you are suddenly, that does not question BBC impartiality in the area of politics. That's fitting for journalists. I don't think it applies to other people at all. And he's criticizing a government program. If he'd said, I hate Catholics, you know, then you say, well, that's, you, now you're spreading hate about a group. That's not a political well, no, view. Well, just that's being offensive. And, right. Yeah. So, so if you, yes, if someone on the right says, I hate black people, or I don't want those dirty refugees here, you would say, well, that's just offensive and spreading hate. And it can happen from somebody. I, I do wonder if, mm -hmm. if I offended him when I called him Mike Lineker or Mark Lineker at the head of the show. Ooh, that's the probably program. my fault. I, I apologize for that. It's probably my fault. So, yeah. So it, it doesn't mean you can say whatever you want, but when you're not an actual news political journalist and you're in other areas of the BBC, does the new Doctor Who not get to weigh in on politics on this day off? You know, people who do that will always risk the fact that they may become unhirable or people won't like them anymore. Just because you're not required to be impartial doesn't mean you won't face consequences for what you say. But so, so you, you agree just, then? Yeah. You agree with Ron DeSantis uh, that cancel culture is bad. Um, it's not cancel culture. Cancel culture as Ron <laughs> DeSantis. No, I know. But what he means is somebody being unfairly fired. It's like, no, you say something. I hate gays. And you're a teacher at a university. How are your high students supposed to feel like, oh, great. I'm going to get a good grade in this class. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's well, not appropriate. And that would be appropriate to say if the teacher has a bumper sticker for Trump on their car. No, they should not be fired. That's not, that wouldn't be cancel culture. That would just be idiotic and wrong. People are allowed to have political opinions. Uh, but would it be a big deal? Absolutely. And it is time for big deal or big whoop. Oh, you're skipping over streaming. Screw it. We don't have any time. We'll come back to it next week. You don't care anyway, do you people? I love the numbers, but you don't. What is big deal or big whoop? Well, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell, tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Now, our first story, hey, it's all about streaming. Judge Judy is heading back to syndication with new episodes, but not as... Judge Judy. No, she's going to be Bailiff Judy. No, just kidding. Her show for Amazon Freeview or something. Uh, I don't know what, what it's called now. Uh, it will be Ju sold to Judy local Justice. TV stations. Judy Justice. Oh, Judy Justice. Okay. Uh, it's going to be sold to local TV stations and a cable channel soon. They've got about 260 episodes of Judy Justice in the can. And frankly, almost no one has seen them on the blink and you miss it platform. So they're new to you. And it turns out that reruns of Judge Judy or Judy Justice or, oh no, Judge Judy actually. Right. There's still reruns of Judy Justice. They're proving surprisingly popular in the ratings. I guess once you've seen one dispute over who's dog bit who or, you know, why the, you were driving without a driver's license, uh, all those, you know, it all starts to blend together. Who can tell a rerun from a new episode? I certainly can. I've always wondered if I'm watching a rerun. In fact, Judge Judy reruns still rank third in syndication behind only Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune here in the United States. So is this 
a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. Streaming to syndication is pretty new. BoJack Horseman did it, but not a lot of shows have. And there's a lot of empty uh, land in daytime television. Eight shows have left daytime in the last two years. Wendy Williams, Ellen DeGeneres, Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, bye-bye, uh, Maury, Rachel Ray, Judge Mathis, and the People's Court among them. There's a lot of room. And, you know, we talked about this before. When Netflix had the re reboot of One Day at a Time, they canceled it after, I think, three years. I don't think it was two. I think it was the Magic Three, so they didn't want to have yeah, to pay three, the extra yeah. contract. And I thought at the time... You know, what about syndication? I mean, you can make money off the show. It doesn't have to just sit in your library. This could strip on TV land right after the original one day at a time. Uh, this is a valuable show. You get it to 100 episodes and you could really make money with this all over the world, especially in Latin America and Spain. You know, uh, you know, think big. It doesn't have to just be about your library sitting on your streamer. And with everybody dumping stuff off their streamer and putting it on fast channels and other stuff. I think you're going to see more rethinking about, hey, maybe every show doesn't have to be the type of show that wouldn't work on a network. You've got Poker Face on Peacock. That sucker can stream someday. Keep that in mind when you're, you're making the show and thinking about its afterlife. It's not all about just bringing people to your streamer. You can make big bucks in syndication. And then guess what? People get residuals. <laughs> Yeah, well, those see last week's show. And, and uh, Will and Smith, below. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Will Smith, he can take comfort. Country artist Morgan Wallen is back on top. The artist took a timeout after a video of a drunken, uh, well, Wallen, he was drunk, casually using the N word. That made him persona non grata for a while, but his new album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 with the equivalent of. 500,000 units in streaming and sales. He's also got his first number one song with Last Night. Actually, let's face it, Wallen never went away. His second album is the blockbuster release Dangerous. That was a huge hit. It was as huge a hit as can be. Uh, even, as his, even as the scandal happened, yeah. Yeah, it passed up the 109 weeks. Uh, what, what is it now? 110th non-consecutive week in the top right. 10 right now? This, this double album, his last album, has been in the top 10 for more than uh, for 110 weeks. Not in a row, but 110 weeks in the top 10. That's amazing. It's the second best all time. Wow. Okay, well, what was... Wow. So what did it beat out? It, I guess. It, oh, it, the mm -hmm. sound of music. The, okay. The, yeah. The soundtrack. But, but my question is, what's it, what's it got to beat out next? Oh, the 173 weeks spent on the top 10 by the original cast album of My, my Fair Lady. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to beat that. Big deal or big whoop? Um, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. He bounced right back from his controversy. His fans never left him. They kept streaming his last album and they're streaming this one. Of course, this new album has 36 songs, which certainly helps the first week's streaming numbers. But even if you take out like 12 or 15 of them, he still would have been like the 10th biggest uh, streaming debut of all time. It's the biggest country album debut in this era since like Taylor Swift had a country album a few years ago. Um, uh, you know, one of her re revamps of her earlier albums. It's a monster, uh, but 36 songs that may be good for your opening streaming numbers. It's not good for your creativity. It's not good for creating an album that will last, you know, prune it down, buddy. Country albums used to only have 10 songs, 10, like you could not do 11, you could not do 12. And then eventually went to 12, but that was it. You know, and now, I mean, 36, just because the more tracks you have, the more time people spend listening to it those first few times. 
But are they going to come back 100 times? Clearly they did for dangerous, but I don't know here. But look who he's facing down. Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews is on the soundtrack to The Sound of Music. And Julie Andrews is, of course, on the original cast album to My Fair Lady. That's a big star. And she taught Morgan Wallen how to sing. She you know, did. Go She's a, a, yeah, 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 yeah. She taught us all oh, to wait, sing. Might, yeah, might, might not have been him exactly. It was all of us. Somebody. Yeah, well. Uh, now, last week, Michael, you questioned the move, uh, well, the movie Shingle, A24, buying the off-Broadway house Cherry Lane Theater. I did. So I wonder what you're going to think about this. Multi-hyphenate J.J. Abrams is branching out into live theater. <sighs> Calling the new division Bad Robot Live, his production company is called Bad Robot, it's partnering with the Ambassador Theater Group for the next three years. ATG will get a shot at Bad Robot's IP and creativity, while Bad Robot gets to work in with established theater producers. Executive Elizabeth Rothman has been overseeing development of plays, musicals, and immersive events at Bad Robot and will be in charge of the new division. Their first project bringing the Olivier-nominated play called One Woman Show to Broadway. You know, I wonder if One Woman Show, uh, how big the cast is. <laughs> big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course. People venturing into new territories. They do it all the time. The question is, is it in your wheelhouse? Do you have the people to execute properly? Do you just have a lot of money on your hand and suddenly you want to you know, play with it? You know, you see small companies that have a big hit and then suddenly they've got fancy offices with marble entrances and you think, yeah, you're that, you don't need all this. <laughs> so I was criticizing A24 because I thought they've never done anything in live theater. Have they hired somebody who does live theater? Why are they doing live theater? In this case, J.J. Abrams does have producing credits on shows. He produced one of the producers on The Play That Goes Wrong and the off-Broadway hit Darren Brown's Secret, which I quite liked. Uh, both of those very successful commercially. I'm sure he was mostly a producer who signed a check. I don't think he was involved day-to-day -day with them. I don't know that. I'm just assuming because he's a busy man. But at least he's been involved, and they have an executive in place, Elizabeth Rothman. She was formerly at the Manhattan Theater Club in charge of play development for a number of years. So she has serious theater experience. She's been at the company getting ready to do stuff, and happily they're ready to take it to the next level. So that feels more organic, more purposeful, more like they know what they're doing. So, you know, in that case, I think, uh, good on you, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think this is all about uh, Felicity the Musical. <laughs> it could be. She has great hair. Yeah, well, ASCAP is the latest remaining performing rights organization. Yeah, well, and it's the last one in the United States that's a nonprofit, and it's bringing in big bucks for its members. It announced a record $1.5 billion in revenue for 2022, a 14% growth over the year before and an all-time record revenue grew in every category of licensing including general licensing radio audio streaming and audio visual big deal or big wolf yeah but what about podcast revenue what about that revenue people i don't see any yeah okay that's not yeah, their area no thing. Yeah, it's not really their thing um it's a big deal uh, you want to grow? They're coming out of a record year where they did so well last year. Everybody in music, people were buying streaming hand over fist, streaming numbers, a big number, and it hasn't slowed down yet. So that's very good news for music. The Recording Indus Industry Association of America, the RIAA, they say the music business hit two milestones, which, you know, depending on how fast they were going, can cause a lot it of hurts. damage it when you hurt. hit those milestones. Mm, ouch. Yeah. For the first time ever, paid music subscription streaming revenue hit $10 billion. I thought that my subscription was really expensive, but I don't, wow. Uh, and industry revenue at wholesale 
Okay, that hit $10 billion as well. U.S. recorded music revenue rose for the seventh year in a row, hitting $15.9 billion. Streaming, including the $10 billion from paid subscriptions and revenue from people consuming music via YouTube videos and the like, that accounted for the lion's share of that. It's the source of 84% of that number, about $13.3 billion. Ad-supported streaming like Pandora and YouTube is $1.8 billion. Limited tiers like Peloton and Pandora Plus, that chipped in $1 billion. Some 92 million people have a paid subscription, which does not include a limited tier. Family plans count as one. Right. They don't a count for four ago, people or something. Yeah. It just counts yeah, as one. Yeah. Yeah, a decade ago, digital downloaded uh, revenue, you know, people buying singles or albums, that accounted for 43% of total revenue. Now, ho- I hope you're sitting down for this, Michael. <laughs> that figure from 43% is now just 3%. For the first time since 1987, by the way, vinyl outsold CDs 41 million versus 33 million. Physical formats accounted for $1.7 billion. Wow, that's a lot of numbers. I don't know, did we have the number four in any of yeah, them? Yes. Oh, we had 43, yes. Uh, six, do I see a six anywhere? Anywhere? Mm-hmm. Nope. Okay, if you round up 15.9 billion, it's six, 16 billion. Okay, well, there you go. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. Just like we said with ASCAP, uh, publishing was doing great. We don't have the total numbers for the recorded music revenue of the year yet, but these numbers are big. They hit $10 billion uh, in streaming. Uh, they're, they're making a lot of money from subscription, and it's still got a lot of room to grow world worldwide. Uh, we know, of course, digital sales are, are dropping because people found out, oh, wow, I don't own it and I can't even hand it down to my kids. You're going to make it hard for me to hand my iTunes library. I spent $1,000 on music. And then when I die, they're like, sorry, you're, you're blocked out. Yeah, that kind of kills people's desire to buy digital, doesn't it? So uh, yeah, there's, that's never coming back. But you know, that's what I said about vinyl. And here it is, physical formats. Vinyl counted for most of that revenue because you're charging more for vinyl nowadays than you are for CDs. Funny how things change. But that's a $1.7 billion. I don't think it's going to grow a big much more. I think that's kind of, you know, it's not going to become anywhere near what it was, obviously. But, uh, you know, other than keeping pace with inflation, that feels like it's for niche hobbyists and people who are really into physical product. I'm actually thinking about buying the Dark Side of the Moon box set on CD, you know, because maybe I've got all my CDs. Maybe I'll bring them out again. Maybe I'm feeling like that. But, you know. They want people to stream it. People are doing it, and it's working. That's why they should not try and convert Morgan Wallen's streaming numbers into faux sales. Like, he did not sell 500,000 copies. Just tell us the total streaming numbers and start doing that all the time because that's where you're making your money. Give us those numbers, and don't play games by turning apples into oranges. Spotify rolled out major changes to the streaming service last week. So speaking of streaming... First, it got all TikTok with a new vertical feed that they insist will encourage discovery. And they, I love their dance moves, by the way. It's very cool, their their dance moves. Uh, Spotify is not focused on keeping you on Spotify as long as possible. No, no, no. No, no, not at all. They are focused on helping you discover new music and audio and video stuff. You know, you know, that's really, oh, but it has to be on Spotify, of course. <laughs> yeah. A controversial plan allows artists to get pushed higher in visibility, you know, if they accept lower royalties. Fans can finally pre-save an album before it's released. They're going to start playing a new podcast episode uh, on Spotify, that, and they're going to do that. Spotify's going to do that with uh, a, a podcast they think you'll like right after you finish 
listening to this week's Showbiz Sandbox. Oh, and Spotify boasts that it's paid out nearly $40 billion in music rights hold to music rights holders like ASCAP, by the way. Uh, that's about 70% of all the revenue it takes in. Is this a big deal or big whoop? Right. Okay. So you don't make any music. Not quite true anymore. They pay for original podcasts and stuff. But by and large, you don't yeah. make any music. And yet you take all of our music and you're like, yeah, you can have some of that money back. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I can. You get to decide how much and I get to have some of it back. Oh, okay. It's like if I'm a pirate stealing all your movies and I say, here you go. Here's some of it. You get 70% of it. You know, isn't that nice? Aren't you happy? Why can they not make money? Good Lord. Well, yeah. I mean, at the, at you know, I guess you'd have to look at operations and, and, but that's you know, insane. And they're, and they're, like they're screwing over songwriters. They're not paying enough money out. Sorry about that. 70% it should probably be 90%. They're wasting money on billion dollars in podcast content creation when they've got tons of content for free and they're not properly compensating people for it. And everybody around the world is, you've got how many millions of people are, are subscribing to Spotify and yet they can't never made a profit. We get free stuff that somebody else makes for you. You get to sell it all over the world, and yet you can't make a profit. Something's wrong here. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But they have 205 million paid subscribers worldwide, and they're still not profitable. It ain't like Amazon where you feel like they're just keeping to take more market share. They're spending money in areas that aren't benefiting them that much, like podcasts. Uh, of course, yeah, they, I, I, I think just, they, they got out of that, though. They're, no, I think not out they're, of it. They still have tons of money spent on podcasts. They're just slowing down on their spend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. It's just ridiculous. But that's all very inside baseball, Ooh. you know, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of Keep a, going. And by the way, inside baseball is a segment on our program where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And this week we're talking about the state of Hollywood. So that would be California, by the way, Mike. Hey, exactly. Uh, and, what are we going to uh, look at? I don't know. Where do you want to begin? Well, uh, the we, the we'll... Cinema Foundation, uh, no. run by Jackie Brenneman, who we talked about last week, yeah. uh, they released their first inaugural report on in the motion picture business. Oh, well, I was going to, what, what did it say? Well, they said that the screen, screen count worldwide. Oh, that's uh, where you got I, that. Oh. I, no, I no, beg your I, pardon. I, I didn't know where you got your. I got my info from the CJ Marquee from Celluloid Junkie. Tell people how to sign up for the newsletter. Yes, if you go to uh, celluloidjunkie.com, right on the right hand sidebar is a little uh, text box. If you enter your email address and hit submit, you are signed up and subscribed to the CJ Marquee. And uh, we will not spam you because, you know, we barely get one issue out per week. So you'll <laughs> be lucky wait. if you get one per week. Right. So and I really liked how you summarize the WGA battle and what writers are facing. Uh, so we quote that at length below. But first, we're talking about screen count. So let me ask you, North America lost 2,220 screens during the pandemic. My question is, we now have 42,063 screens. Were we over screened? Is this just a natural attrition that was accelerated by the pandemic? Are we losing, are those screens mostly uh, in major cities, extra screens? Or did small towns, are they more losing their one venue that they had and now they have nothing? Where's the hurt really happening? And are we in a good place? Maybe we just had too many, just like there were too many Starbucks. Yeah, I don't know. And I think that's the next that's what needs to be studied next. I mean, now that you've said, okay, you've gone out to all the exhibitors and said, okay, how many screens do you have? Okay, so 100, we'll put that down. And how many screens do you, oh, 200, okay, we'll put that down. Now we need to know, okay, so you had 
250 last year, you closed 50 screens. Where were those screens? Uh, that, of course, Regal accounts for a lot of them. Not a lot of them, but some of them, certainly. Well, uh, they're not we need disappeared, to find out- are they? How many screens? No, have- but they're, they're technically closed, and we'll see what happens to some of them. So, for instance, in my hometown, Regal closed their theater, and then another, another theater operator came by six months later and said, we'll reopen it for you. Uh, so that theater stayed a theater. The six screens that closed weren't counted and now will be counted again. Uh, there are others where, you know... Well, why don't we just, know? I mean, haven't people been paying attention to find out whether the screens that have gone under have been a majority just some I of that extra... I think NATO probably has, and I will be calling them on that task. Yes, question. you should, because we want to know, is it small town? I mean, I'm sure it's both, but where's the major hurt coming? Are these screens that are gone forever, or are these screens that were surplus screens in big markets that maybe we didn't need? Worldwide, we have 200... Well, also, if you look at certain... Certain territory, certain geographic areas in the United States, you'd look at, uh, you know, the Northeast, you know, New England. Way. Historically underscreened. Yeah. So, right. So, it's, there's a lot of room for growth there, strangely enough. But basically, in the North America, we have one screen for every 9,000 people. Worldwide, we have 255,000 screens, but that's just one screen for every 31,000 people. So, there's room for growth. The average ticket price. Yeah, but then you have like countries like Bolivia where they're like, we have a tenplex. Well, you know, right. They, That's where there's tons of room yeah. for growth. Exactly. Africa, yeah. India, Bolivia, there's tons of room for growth. The average ticket price is $10.53, which sounds a little bit higher than I've been hearing, but okay, we'll just accept that. But if you look at inflation back in 1971, in terms of buying power today, the ticket price was equivalent to $11.92. And I've seen that again and again, looking at the 70s and the 80s, when you translate the buying power of that ticket into today's dollars. Movie ticket prices, at least the average, is not extraordinarily higher. Now, of course, some people are spending $25 for IMAX in a big city, and that's where you're paying a ton of money. I'm going to the discount movies and sometimes $5 Tuesdays. So I'm paying $5. So, you know, it does matter where those dollars are being spent. So that's why people in big cities feel like, wow, movie tickets are expensive. But if you're in the suburbs or the heartland, you can see movies for a very reasonable price that's really well within line of what we were seeing 30, 40, 50 years ago. So they're not necessarily gouging you. And more importantly, when we're talking about the rebound of the box office, in 2019, before the lockdown, there were 112 wide releases in North America, and that's defined as a movie opening on 2,000 plus screens. In 2023, we have 107 wide releases planned, almost as many in 2019. That's significantly up. That's like 40, I'm sorry, 36 more movies than in 2022. That's literally 55% more movies being released in 2023 than last year. If box office increases by 55%, we'll go from 7.5 billion to $10.7 billion. That's not 2019's 11 billion, but that's a really good number. And when you put out the wide releases, you can see that, well, that's why it was only 7 billion. There were only that many movies out. You can't make money if you don't release movies. So there's room for hope, isn't there? And that should make the new head of NATO breathe easy. Well, I'm sure he'd say, uh, uh, hey, uh, hey, Michael, do you have time to chat about some of these numbers that you're talking about and really just explain to me what you're now maybe you have i'm kidding of course i'm kidding no well i'm i'm not though maybe you need to be more politic because you deal with exhibitors you deal with nato you deal with other people i can go a little bit off here michael p o'leary gave an interview to variety 
um, talking about what he's looking forward to doing, saying all the right things, of course, you know, like you would. Um, we found out he used to work at the MPA, probably back when it was the MPAA. No, he hasn't spoken to John Fithian yet, but he's looking forward to having a beer with him and getting his, you know, uh, terrific advice. Uh, he says, you know, what do we need? First of all, he says, we need more movies. And he said, we need more product which uh, to me irks Hollywood, but maybe Hollywood business execs don't care about that. But, uh, you know. Uh, no, that's actually where he's getting the, think about it, that's where he's getting the terminology. He's uh-huh. getting that from talking to CEOs at But when, but when you're talking to the media, even Variety, I think it behooves you to treat movies as the beloved entertainment it is rather than a widget. But I, I had yes. a lot of problems with what he said. If I was the person passed over for this guy who basically came across as, yeah, whatever, I'm a lobbyist. It works. You don't need to know, you know, if you can lobby and you can get consensus, you can do it anywhere. That was kind of what he said. Yeah, you know. And then when he talked about movies, he sounded pretty clueless. I would be furious to have somebody who comes in and seems to just be a suit who like may be great at what he does in lobbying, but really doesn't know your business and that he gets the job instead of me, I'd be pissed. This is what he said to Variety about his priorities. Well, one quote is to absorb as much as I can, to learn as much as I can, to listen more than I talk. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's the best way to get my feet on the ground. I'm also talking to members, getting a sense of what's important to them, how they want to see NATO operating. And then I'm starting to get to know the NATO team and learn about them as individuals and how they fit together as a group. End quote. In other words, he doesn't know anything about movies and he's got a lot to learn. <laughs> I mean, that's what you would say when you're coming in and you don't know anything about what's, ha- you know, what is this business? Who are these people? What are their priorities? I mean, that's what you got to say, but that just shows you how little he knows. And then they asked him, why was he the right pick for the job? He said, quote, I've had a lot of different experiences and I take something different from each of them, whether it's understanding the movie industry generally, understanding how to solve difficult problems, understanding the value of relationships and working with people, trying to build and drive consensus. If you master those things, you can have success, whether it's in the private sector, the government, wherever. End quote. Again, it's like, whatever, it's lobbying. You know, it doesn't matter what it's for. You just have to be good at lobbying. And he said, like, you know, it's important to know you can't just show up when you have a problem on, 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 on Congress in D.C. You got to be there all the time telling your story and letting them know how important you are. And when you talk to politicians, they all love going to the movies. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he was asked about maybe theaters are slow to innovate, this is to me, kind of the worst. He said, quote, there are innovations in the theatrical space like more comfortable chairs or different types of food. I recently went to see women talking and I was able to have a glass of wine and popcorn. It was an enjoyable experience. End quote. I'll say this mm-hmm. about this particular interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, who, who hosted Saturday Night Live? Who was Wednesday? That The actress that played Wednesday, she's 20 years old and, and now I'm forgetting. Chris, Christina uh, Ricci? Her, no, no, no. Uh, the new Wednesday. Oh, you, Jenna, 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 Jenna Ortega. Ortega. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you meant Yes. Yeah. Okay. She said something recently that did her no favors about how she had to fix all the writing and fix all uh, on Wednesday and she helped save the show. By, yeah, yeah. By her. I was like, you're doing yourself no favors whatsoever there. I think this interview did uh, Mr. O'Leary no favors in the exhibition community. Is that feedback you're getting? You're just guessing based on reading the interview. I, it's feedback I'm getting. I think they're like, wait, we thought you knew a little about this. Like, we thought, like, he sounds, somebody had... It's not just me. He sounds like, oh, wow, I went to a movie. They've got nice seats. Like, yes, for 20 years now. <laughs> you know, we've had reclining seats, or at least 10. I don't know when it began. But, yeah, this is not new. 
It sounds like he hasn't been to a movie in years. So very yeah. upsetting. Very upsetting. I, I think that, uh, I think quite honestly, I think that it was, um, I, it's, it's kind of like when George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, the first Bush, uh, went to the grocery store during the 1992 right. presidential campaign and yeah. said, oh, you have scanners? This is an interesting, it's but like that, that just lost the election. That should keep you from winning the election, and it didn't keep this guy from getting the job. So that's disappointing. And one last thing, NATO, update your website. I mean, isn't he in charge now? Isn't he working? No, he's not. Not, oh, not okay. yet. And so technically, he's uh, not in charge. All right. So hence, they can update their website when he actually takes over the job. We'll see what happens. I'm still a wait and see kind of guy when it comes to Mr. O'Lear at, at NATO because, you know, he uh, hasn't even I, begun yet. <laughs> yeah. An interview and, and, and practice are two totally different things. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens in practice. I do know one thing. He will probably talk to somebody at the studios uh, at some point, maybe even someone named Bob Iger. Ah, that's right. So Bob Iger's been waning on Disney. It must have been a quarterly earnings call or something, but he had a lot to say. Some disses at his, uh, uh, you know, the guy, he just replaced Bob Chapek, sort of. theme. He said, look, theme parks are too expensive. And you know what? Disney price was too cheap. We priced it too low. Yeah, we're making too much stuff, but everything we make is going to be good now. And uh, as in terms of the subsidiaries, well, FX, that's a great brand. But Hulu... Not so much. That's not really a brand. Well, unless unless we're selling it, in which case it's worth a lot, you know. So so he's a little. Yeah, bit he's got to walk a tightrope there. He's got a really hard job with Hulu, and and that's because he has this clause where he has to buy Hulu for like twenty four billion dollars from Comcast. I thought they could. I didn't realize they had to. Well, I think there's like a like they have to sell at some point. Oh, I thought um, I thought I thought they had the option. But maybe yeah, I'm I have to go and double check what, what I'm saying here. But I know that there's like some $24 billion figure keeps getting bantied around right. a lot. Well, um, that's how much it feels when you go to Disney. It feels very expensive to go to Disney World and Disneyland. I have friends who are hardcore Disney fans. And all the little changes that they made under Chapek just make everything feel so nickel and dime and expensive. And one of the big problems, I think, psychologically is at Disney World where they have that Star Wars immersive experience. The numbers are coming out uh, and it's flopping. They are now cutting back soon to where that will only be operating that immersive come stay in the star wars world where for you know a few days a weekend you're like in the world of star wars and playing a game it's very immersive that they're going to cut back and offer that just like four days a week rather than seven it's very expensive that's why extremely expensive and there's not that much demand and the bigger problem to me not only is that a bad idea and it's not clicking because there's not enough demand now you have this whole land that's only operating four days a week which means all those people who are sitting there who have those jobs what do they do the other three days a week you can't just suddenly put them in a mickey costume but the idea of going to disney world and then over there is this major attraction that 90 percent, 95 percent of the people who go to this already quite expensive event going to disney world they're never going to be able to afford it or think it's a good idea and that's psychologically your kid is going oh i guess i can't go over there that's just real you're in the park and you just can't go over there and you're not allowed to do that that was just a bad idea from the start and there isn't the demand and it's not clicking and that's a big problem i had that concern about avatar as well because i thought there's only been one movie what if this turns out to be the matrix and the next movie makes everybody hate the first movie or not care as much about it you know you're committing to a land but i thought well all right it's naturey, so maybe they can get away with it and it's worked very well and they're going to do avatar in uh, disneyland and have more avatar lands 
And obviously the movies are doing great, so that should really pump it up for decades to come. But they've got a Star Wars hotel that's just this dragging weight on Disney World. Uh, it's not good. And then the but other, isn't that mm-hmm. ki- that's kind of like what's happening in a lot of entertainment? You know, uh, that they make massive, massive bets and, on too much money and it doesn't work out. Well, and like it, look at the like you know the fact that like some people, a very small number of people, can do this very you know exclusive thing. Uh, and, and you know, I, I I tried to get tickets for the Lumineers recently. The literally the minute they went on sale, I I got in. The minute they went on sale, you know how many tickets were available? How many? Eighteen thousand seats? Zero. Wow. Yeah. First minute on sale. With, with a pre, it was, you mean, but it was, there was a pre-sale, if you were a member no of the idea. club, and then like, there was an Amex sale, and then, there, and then it was the general public sale. You gotta, these days, you have to be a fan club member, which hopefully doesn't cost you anything. Sometimes it does. In that case, that's, you know, they get you 20 bucks a year, and then you, got, then you get access. But you have to be in a fan club, or you have to have an Amex card. Otherwise, you're out of luck. And yeah, that's really bad. I thought you were going to talk about the price for the Lumineers. But I think Disney World is not that, in the- That was expensive, too by the way. I'll tell you that. Disney World is not in the business, shouldn't be in the business of only appealing to the super rich. If you want to do that, you better have some separate thing. You know, you've got Disney Cruises, you've got the movies, you've got the TV, you got Disney World, the parks. Those are supposed to be for the broad middle class. It may be aspirational for a lot of people because it's so pricey, but it shouldn't be out of reach. And you shouldn't go to the park and find out that the super rich people are passing you in line, which is what happens now. You know, everybody, you just passed up by the rich people, probably invisibly, but you know, they're there, you're waiting in line and they're cutting ahead to the front. They're having an entirely different experience at Disney World. And there's an entire land that just looms. It's like seeing the castle of Cinderella or Snow White. Whose castle is it? I forget. Cinderella? Cinderella's. Yeah. Cinderella's castle. Like, yes. Yeah, you can't go yeah. there. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> that just sounds awful. And when they're talking about Disney Plus being too low cost, they were trying to drive up numbers. And now they're like, no, we can make more money. We don't need to charge $7 a, a month. Uh, they've got more subscribers they're going to lose. They're going to lose more subscribers in India. Why? Well, first, Disney Plus Hotstar lost certain rights to the Indian Premier League for the digital realm. And now they've confirmed that their deal with HBO ends March 31st. That means all HBO content on Hotstar will be gone by April 1st. No fooling. The first season of The Last of Us, the last season of Succession, gone. However, HBO Max scrapped plans to launch in India last year on its own, but it already has a deal via Amazon Prime. But if you are a subscriber to Disney Plus Hotstar, you had Premier League and you had HBO plus all the Disney stuff, you just lost two big legs of that. So there's probably going to be more attrition for them there, which will make it harder for them to reach their subscriber numbers. That's why they need to raise prices and make sure they're bringing in some bucks. Now, speaking of uh, harder... The WGA and the DGA are entering their contract talks. Of course, we talked about last week the uh, WGA contract expiring May 1st. You can expect a writer's strike. I don't see how they get around it. Uh, you have, you DGA, have six, we have six weeks, right? And you just don't yeah, think Yeah, I don't can see happen. how they get around it. I mean, because the, the entire business has changed. The whole structure of the business has changed. I don't see how you fix that problem in six weeks. But I've been wrong before, so... Well, you were right in your uh, newsletter for CJ Presents the Marquee talking about the writer's strike. You were summing up life for the writers. You basically said pilots are dead, which I wasn't quite aware of, but you say it, so it must be true. Just basically, most of the time, shows are just greenlit. Like, all right, make eight episodes, make 10, whatever. But instead of 20 to 22 episodes, like you might do for CBS, ABC, or NBC, more and more, you're finding your season may be 13 episodes, or 10, or eight. 
And now instead of them forming a writer's room, like you'll have on a network show and they tackle every script in order, they have three or four in advance and the season begins and the shows start to catch up filming while they're trying to write episodes and they're making, writing a new episode every week. And then two weeks later, it goes into production, that whole cycle. That doesn't happen anymore. More and more of the producers set up a mini room. That means you have fewer writers and they're supposed to do all the scripts before filming begins. And instead of getting a fee per episode, they're just getting a flat fee for the entire season. And residuals for writers, you said, they're, they're kind of gone, certainly for streaming shows. If you're on the blacklist or you're doing some other network show like Abbott Elementary, uh, you know, that could be, there could be money there. Um, but if you have a hit show back in the old days, that might have given you ten dollars to $20,000 a year, year after year after year. You did MASH, you did Seinfeld, you did uh, whatever. You did one of the NCISs. That's real money. That can really you know, keep you up for life. Now, residuals for a streaming show, you might get $200. And you said, well, and that's the average, right? So, right. like, when I'm, uh, well, when you but look a lot at of writers aren't working. So, yeah, this is for people who are lucky enough to have a hit. Right. Even if you have and a so hit, what you're I'm not saying making 10000 you're making 200 Right, exactly. So, if you're on MASH and you're on MASH for like, you know, six years, you're making $200,000 a year not going to work. Yeah. And you summed it all up. You said, quote, so you've got writers working on shows with fewer episodes that wind up having shorter lifespans of three or four seasons, much smaller writing staffs and no long term residuals. In the meantime, the opportunity to work on spec screenplays or movies has dried up since fewer original films are being made by studios and streaming platforms. End quote. That's the world writers face. A lot less money, a lot more work on fewer episodes and you're stranded and you're trying to figure out how am I going to keep afloat? Right. And so then what you do is you start, uh, you, you get your real estate license and you start doing that. And so you're doing that on the side, but then that becomes more lucrative and you start doing that, you know, full time. And then the next thing you know, you're not even living in Los Angeles since you can't really afford to live here as a working writer. And, and the then you know what, you're not really, yeah, you're not really in the, in the television business anymore. Your, your or, career or is dead. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're doing. You're talking about uh, Topol. That's really, right. It's tradition about. on yeah. Showbiz Sandbox to end with some obituaries. It's tradition, tradition. And actor Chaim Topol knows about tradition. He played Tevya on stage and in the film version of Fiddler on the Roof. His big break was in the 1964 Israeli film Salah Shabbati. Uh, now he has died at the age of 87. That first film was a smash hit in Israel, seen all over the world. It won a Golden Globe and became the first Israeli film to be nominated for an Academy Award as Best Foreign Film. That's what they called him back then. Later, Topol appeared in a Bond film in 1980's Flash Gordon, but it's Fiddler he'll be remembered for. He played Tevye in Israel and then again in Britain, where director Norman Jewison saw him and decided Topol would do the film rather than Zero Mostel. He thought Zero would be too too broad for the movies. Oh, what a tragedy. Anyway, Topol would go on to perform the role for the rest of his life some 3,500 times. L'chaim, Topol. Or should I say Shalom? Illustrator and writer Ian Falconer died at the age of 63. I have a link to one of my interviews with him. I spoke to him a couple times. He was a best-selling author, costume and set designer. He worked on operas, ballets, theater. He created more than 30 covers for The New Yorker, but like Topo and T Fiddler, Ian Falconer will live forever thanks to a pig. 
That would be Olivia, the six-year-old star of his first picture book, which came out in 2000. It was a sensation, sparking rave reviews, coverage by me, big sales, an animated TV series, toys, and more. Adults love the book almost more than kids. In 2003, when I interviewed Falconer for the second time, he was recovering from intestinal surgery and rather overwhelmed by its success. He said he'd finished up the third Olivia book and decided he would do one more, and that would be that. That would make a nice box set, four Olivia books. That's plenty. He did the fourth book and then nine more. (laughs) Robert Blake died. And even if the Oscars won't mention him, we will. He died at the age of 89. He began as one of the little rascals, those street urchins who got into hijinks in a long running series of shorts. He ended up at the end of his life beating a murder rap, but losing a wrongful death suit brought by the children of his wife, his late wife. And he basically never worked again. First, he joined the Our Gang series of shorts, The Little Rascals. He made more than 40 episodes of them over a five-year period, ultimately becoming the lead rascal. Then he rather wouldn't do this today. He started playing a Native American kid called Little Beaver in the B-Western series Red Rider. Uh, about 23 of those movies. He won an Emmy, of course, for the cop show Beretta, and he appeared in films like The Treasure of the Sierra Madres, a very brief cameo as a kid selling a lottery ticket to, to Bogey, and Bogey throws water in his face. And then he was in Porkchop Hill, one of my favorite movies about war, and his masterpiece In Cold Blood. And that came after he turned down the Michael Landon role in Bonanza. So he made kind of Talk a Talk about call. residuals. Yeah, Talk right. about But he didn't do Bonanza. He did Beretta, uh, which was not as big a hit as Bonanza. And his final film was a weird turn in David Lynch's Lost Highway. And finally, Mr. Big, the director, Burt I. Gordon, died at the age of 100. He did a lifetime of crafting extremely low-budget scary flicks that dominated drive-ins for generations. He worked with stars on the way up, been on their way down from Peter Graves before Mission Impossible to Joan Collins in Empire of the Ants a few years before Dynasty revived her fortunes for good. Uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the Puppet People, Picture Mommy Dead, Food of the Gods. If the titles didn't have exclamation points, they should have. His films became a favorite of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Gordon was not amused. He said, quote, I watched it one time and I didn't like them making fun of my work. I take my films very seriously. End quote. And that's how you make good B-movies. You make them with sincerity. If you're being campy or silly, it doesn't work. But our show works, doesn't it? Yeah, I like to think we're campy and silly all the time, and we work, I think, sort of. That's right, girlfriend. Uh, Well, look, uh, make sure you tune in next week to find out just how campy and silly we are. Uh, subscribe to us anywhere they give podcasts out. You know, but not, you pick but up not in Florida. You can't subscribe anymore in Florida. Not if we're campy. Oh, true. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can even rate and review our show in some of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. That information, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode. That can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com, or ways to leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. And Thompson is on at IndieWire, and I'd like to thank her for taking the time to join us earlier. We'll place links to her work on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. And Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Free Gary Lineker. 
Oh, wait, it's already free. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? If you can't find uh, any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on uh, free Mark Lineker, uh, why not head on over to uh, michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. You didn't even like correct me when I got his name wrong for a second time. What good are you? Ah. <laughs> In any case, uh, my work, some of my work at least, can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until actually not next week, two weeks from now, play nice. Oh, 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 oh,